right. Well, good morning, beloved. Welcome. I want to invite you this morning to open your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2, and this morning we return to the text we started last week, verses 1 through 3. And I want to begin today by reading our text, and then after we can look at it more closely. So let's read 2 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Here now is the word of the living and true God. Peter writes, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. As Peter pens this second chapter, he is unmasking the false teachers so we can recognize who they are and what they teach. And he starts off with a simple sketch in verses 1 through 3, and then he adds in details in verses 4 through 22. It's kind of like he's making a sketched outline, and then he's going to fill in all the details that we need to know as he goes with color. So last week, by way of review, we began with number one, and the sphere of their activity. The sphere of their activity. This is the, the sphere in which these false teachers operate. Notice once again the beginning of verse 1. Peter writes, But false prophets also arose among the people. And we discovered last week he's referring to the Jewish people. Just as there will be false teachers among you. And the among you here is the church. It was the church during the time of Peter when he's writing this, and it is the church uh, during our time as well. It's the church age among you. And so last week, if you recall, we went all the way back to the Pentateuch in Deuteronomy chapter 13. Even when it was back then Moses who was warning God's people, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, he said, who says to you, let us go after other gods whom you have not known. Moses said, do not listen to them. Purge the evil that is among you. And remember, it was a death sentence. They were to pick up stones and stone to death a false prophet. Then we also saw in Jeremiah 6.14, the false prophets would say, peace, peace, when there was no peace. Destruction was coming for God's people. And so Peter was saying, just as God has sent his prophets and his apostles in the end of chapter 1 of Second Peter, and starting now into chapter 2 of First Peter, 
just as God has sent his prophets and his apostles with the word of God made more sure, but, but Satan has his false apostles, his false teachers as well. So in other words, there has always been deception and there will always be deception and it will continue to be Satan's ploy among you even as it was among them. Therefore, we must all heed this important warning by Peter. And then we also saw the warnings by the other New Testament writers as well. For example, the Apostle Paul also warned of these dangers when he wrote to the Galatians in Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. There he said, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But Paul said, even if we, we, the apostles, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I again say now, if any man, is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. And you can tell from the apostles' language, both here and elsewhere, that these false teachers were already on the attack. This wasn't something that was coming. This wasn't something that was down the road. This was something that was already going on. They were already infiltrating the church at the beck and call of Satan. These were agents of seducing spirits, teaching demonic doctrine. Listen to the warning that Paul gave to the elders of Ephesus before he left to go back to Jerusalem in Acts chapter 20, verse 29. He says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. This is the Ephesians you would be speaking about. And from among your own selves, look at this, men will arise speaking perverse things, and draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, Paul says, be on the alert. And again, notice where Paul's concerning. Was it for those outside of the church? Nope. He says, savage wolves will come in from among your own selves. Men will arise speaking perverse things. See, false teachers always want to pervert the purity of the gospel. And Paul says, be on the alert. In fact, that was Paul's message to the church in Philippi as well. When he said in Philippians 3.2, beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. These were a group called Judaizers who were going around to the churches teaching that circumcision was necessary for salvation. Imagine that. You want to join the church? Sorry, you need to go out back and go see the doctor. Right? That's essentially what it was. If you want to join the church, you had to first become Jewish first. And they prided themselves on being workers of righteousness, yet Paul describes them as evil workers. And they were of the false circumcision. They weren't the true circumcision. And remember... The circumcision was the outward sign 
of the covenant given in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we have a circumcision of the heart. We have a new heart. And, of course, when you read the pastoral epistles, uh, the books of um, First and Second Timothy and of Titus, there you will also see constantly in the background these same sort of warnings. For example, in First Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, Paul warns that the Spirit is explicitly says that in the latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of hypo the hypocrisy of liars. And so, going back to Peter's warning there, in verse 1, just as he knew false prophets had infiltrated Israel in the past, Peter understood there will also be false teachers among you, the church. Now, there are false teachers outside of the church, of course, and we went through some of the false religions of the world last week, but the most dangerous and really the most destructive in the focus of Peter's writing is the work towards the church. They are the ones who do the work from the inside and they do so by claiming the name of Christ. That's what makes them so dangerous. Um, it's um, hardly ever that evil shows up looking like the devil with the little red suit and the horns and the pitchfork. They come claiming the name of Christ. They say the same things. They say they make the right claims. They identify with God's people. But as Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. And so that is the sphere in which their operation lies. It is in the church. Secondly, we looked at the secrecy of their operation. The secrecy. Notice what it says as we continue in verse 1. They will secretly bring in destructive heresies. Their operation is deceitful, it is subtle, it is undercover. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul calls them deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. But their motives are revealed by the characterization Peter gives us of their teaching as they bring in destructive heresies. This is teaching invented by demons and propagated by these hypocritical liars and is intended to lead people astray and to damn them into Satan's eternal dwelling place. That's why Peter calls them destructive heresies. He uses that word actually destruction five times in just this short three-chapter epistle. And each time it always means eternal damnation. That is its intent. Now remember, he cannot damn a regenerated soul. He cannot damn someone who has been born again. But destructive heresies can damn those who come to the church in pursuit of truth. And what this text assumes is that the church has unsaved people in it 
that they can dupe. And if you have a problem with that assumption, you need to go back to Matthew chapter 13 and remember that tares are sown in among the wheat. And there will be other seed that falls upon the rocky soil while still other seed will fall among the thorns. And so, yes, we assume that there will always be those who come to the church, um, some seeking truth, who are then confused and deceived by these false teachers. That brings us to number three, and really the heart of the issue where we um, stopped last week because um, this is quite important. Um, number three is their sin, the, the sin at the root of their operation. Um, and I want you to notice how Peter uses the word even there in the middle of verse two because it underscores the unthinkable magnitude of these false teachers' arrogance. Peter says they will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even, even denying the master who bought them. Now follow this carefully because you need to know the meaning of these words to rightfully interpret this. Uh, this word for denying, um, our new may know, uh, it means to deny or um, to refuse, to, to really to say no to. Um, it's a very strong verb. It's actually used in Hebrews 11.24 where it says, By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. He refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He denied that. He said no to that. That's what this word means. Here, Peter is using it in the present tense to denounce their um, continual denial. So what he's saying here is that these false teachers can be recognized because they continually deny who? The master who bought them. Now, what does that mean? Well, this word master here is the Greek word uh, despotes, despotes, and it means lord, it means ruler, it means sovereign master. It appears just 10 times in the New Testament, and it always refers to one who has supreme authority. Supreme authority. In five instances, the reference is to the master of a house. For example, the last time you'll recall us referring to this was back in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18, where you'll recall the command was for servants to be submissive to your masters with all respect, for this finds favor with God. That's uh, one way it's used. But in the other five uses of it, it refers to God the Father, or God the Son, and it speaks to God's sovereign lordship over one's life. God's sovereign lordship over one's life. We see it used this way in Luke 2, 29, where you know the story, Simeon, who's been at the temple, and, and um, they've come to bless the baby Jesus, and he holds the babe in his arms, and he says, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant, your slave, to depart in peace. Now, he was all set to die. The promise from the Spirit, you won't die until you see the promised Messiah. Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. There we see Simeon as the submissive 
bondservant in relation to his master, the Lord. So in all ten of its uses, it refers to sovereign rulership, sovereign lordship over one's life. So what Peter is pointing out concerning these false teachers is that they even deny the sovereign lordship of Jesus Christ. That's their sin. They even deny the master who bought them. Now listen carefully. There have been a great many of heresies through the years that have come against the church. I mean, there have been heresies that have denied the deity of Christ. There have been heresies that have denied the humanity of Christ. Um, there have been heresies that have denied the virgin birth, his atoning sacrifice, his bodily physical resurrection. These false teachers, we know from the third chapter, denied his second coming. They denied his future kingdom. They denied his eternal glory that Christ was ruling and reigning. And those are all heresies as well. But these false teachers who secretly bring in destructive heresies even deny. These ones even deny the master who bought them. And this is the matter that's at hand here. Here are false teachers who may not deny the, de the deity of Christ. They, they may not. They may not deny the virgin birth. They may not deny the bodily resurrection. They're talking about Christ. They have the right name. They have the right person. They have the right work. They might name the name of Christ. They preach the name of Christ. They might cast out many demons in his name. Do many wonderful works in his name. But they say no to his what? His lordship. What does that mean? That means they will not submit their lives to his rule. The sovereign rule. The issue here, beloved, is not primarily theological. It is ethical. It is not their theology that unmasks them. It is their morality that unmasks them. Their theology is covert. They, they secretly bring in destructive heresies. It is their morality that Peter says will unmask them. So he says that they even deny the master who bought them. And this is why the translation master here in um, the New American Standard um, and ESV is probably better than the NIV's translation, sovereign lord. Um, the the de defined des uh, potest does mean sovereign lord. So it's not that the NIV has an incorrect translation. Um, despotes does mean sovereign lord, but it doesn't help us understand the analogy that Peter's using here. Um, now you might be wondering why Peter has added who bought them. The answer is because it fits with Peter's analogy perfectly. And here he's alluding to the master of a house who would buy servants and put them in charge of various household tasks. And willing servants back then were regarded as master's property. You'll remember when we went through 1 Peter chapter 2, we were dealing with masters and servants. All right? And so they were considered property. Servants owned their total allegiance then to their master as their sovereign. They bore the master's name. They were associated with the master's family. But they say no to his lordship. That's the analogy here. 
This describes those who claim Christ as their Redeemer. They affirm the atonement. Uh, they affirm that he bought them with his death. They affirm that they belong to Christ, and yet they deny the master who bought them. How can this be? This doesn't make sense. In what sense did Christ buy these false teachers? Well, there's two ways to, to view it. First, let me explain to you the wrong way to interpret this text. Um, as many will take this statement to mean that Christ actually purchased their redemption in full for all people, even these false teachers. In this view, Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for everyone's sin. Proof text, for God so loved the world. Right? Does that mean that Jesus died to pay the sins for the entire world? Everybody in the world? Or does that mean from every people, place, and tongue? From the cosmos, all around the world, all peoples, all places, all tongues. So, think about it. In this view, Jesus, this wrong view, died on the cross. He pays the penalty for everyone's sins, even these false teachers, whether they ever believe in him or not. If this is true, that would mean Christ's death was a potential atonement. Potential atonement. That becomes an actual atonement when a sinner repents and believes in the gospel. However, this viewpoint, if you take it to its logical conclusion, has hell full of people whose salvation was purchased by Christ on the cross. <laughs> okay? It's ridiculous if you think about it. But we don't, we don't really think about it. We just kind of throw these terms around. This would mean the lake of fire is filled with damned people whose sin Christ fully atoned for by bearing their punishment on the cross at Calvary. And beloved, this perspective says that the Lord Jesus Christ died to make salvation possible, not actual. It's possible, but on the cross, it wasn't actual. He didn't actually really die for your sins. Oh, he died for everybody's sins. Okay, so you got you to look at that. But if this was true, it would mean that Jesus did not absolutely purchase salvation for anyone. He only removed a barrier for everyone which merely makes salvation possible. He didn't actually do it. He made it possible. According to this perspective, when Jesus Christ cried, it is finished, it really should be rendered, it is stated. I've made it possible, but I didn't actually do it. That's the view of universal provision or atonement for the redemption of sinners. And so they say of this verse, these men denied the master who paid for their sins, and since they denied that he bought them, they have brought upon themselves swift destruction. That's one way to look at this verse. But I think there's another sense in which Peter wants us to actually interpret this. Best we can tell, these false teachers have claimed the name of Christ. All right? They claim him as their redeemer. They affirm that 
He bought them with his death on the cross. But no matter what they say, though they say they are of Christ, they refuse to say yes to his sovereign lordship. And thus, they are false teachers. True Christians gladly affirm that they have been bought on the cross of Christ. We gladly affirm that we have been redeemed not with corruptible things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. We gladly affirm that we have been bought with a price. We gladly affirm that we are under his sovereign lordship. We are his slaves. We are his servants. And we obey his commands. Contrary to what some Christians believe today, some people who reject Christ's lordship are not merely designated as second-class Christians. Instead, those who reject Christ's sovereign lordship will face swift destruction. They do not repent from their rebellion. Now, the idea here is this, and it's very crucial. The false teachers say no to a sovereign lordship. They're not interested in any of that. They're not interested in following Jesus Christ. All they want to do is to deceive the people in the church. They're not interested in submitting their life to him at all. They're not interested in holiness. They're not interested in righteousness or godliness or obedience or any of that stuff. Their sin is they name him with their lips and they refuse his lordship with their lives. That's their sin. That's what Peter's saying. Let's continue on as we move to point number four and their success. Their success of the false teacher's operation. Notice just the start of verse two. It says, and many will follow. And stop right there for a moment. Kind of discouraging, isn't it? Many will follow. We already know there aren't many who go through the narrow gate, are there? There are only a few who find it. But many will follow the deceivers. Back in Matthew chapter 24, verse 11, Jesus predicts the exact same thing. Talking about the end of the age, he says, many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. And then down in verse 24, he says, for false Christs and false prophets will arise. Listen, false teachers are going to attract a lot of people. And you've seen them before. They talk about how they know Christ. They talk about how they belong to Christ. But they will not submit to his sovereign lordship. They preach messages of freedom and liberty and self-exaltation, which is inherently appealing to fallen human hearts who would rather serve themselves and submit to Christ. They don't want anybody imposing on their conduct. And so many people are led astray into this kind of Christianity that knows nothing about submission to the sovereign lordship of Christ. And this is exactly what you see in that tragic scene in Matthew chapter 7, isn't it? Exactly. Not to everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who what? Does the will of my Father. Many will say to me, what good is that? Jesus says this, the one who does. 
It isn't the one who claims Christ. Many claim Christ. It's the one who does the will of my Father, who submits to his sovereign lordship. Why will they be so popular? Why will so many go after them and follow them? Because those who are deceived believe they get the best of both worlds. That's really what it is. They think they're getting the best of both worlds. They can claim Christ as Savior and keep living their life of sin. There's no denying self. There's no taking up his cross daily. And there's no following the Lordship of Christ. Are you kidding me? That takes us to number five and their sensuality. Their sensuality. Notice verse two. As we continue, and many will follow, and here it is, their sensuality. This word sensuality, asylgia in the Greek, it means sexual immorality, depraved, um, debauched conduct um, without restraint. They preach a Savior, but they don't want a Lord. Why? Because they want to feed on their lusts. And by the way, sensuality here is plural. Um, their sensualities, their debaucheries, their sexual immoralities. And being plural, it emphasizes all the more that their sexual lewdness was habitual and came in many forms. Listen to what Jude 4 says about these false teachers. Remember, Jude is, is basically a carbon copy of 2 Peter 2. Jude 4, he says these are ungodly people, these false teachers, who pervert the grace of our God into, same word, sensuality, and deny our only master, same language, and Lord Jesus Christ. They might not deny his deity, they might not deny his death and resurrection, but what they don't want is his lordship getting in the way of their sensual lifestyle so they go ahead and live their life however they want to perverting the grace of our god with their sensualities and in doing so they deny our only master and lord jesus christ they claim to represent christ they claim to teach the truth they claim to be a part of the church but their sensuality says otherwise down a couple verses in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 10. It says they indulge in the lusts and defiling passions and despise what? Authority. They want the grace and salvation without the obedience. Look down at verse 13 of 2 Peter chapter 2. They revel in the daytime. In other words, they do this evil when everyone can see them and they really don't care. They are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions. Verse 4 gets even more specific. Their eyes are full of adultery that never cease from sin. They entice unstable souls. Having a heart trained in greed, they are an accursed children. In verse 18, they entice weak people by sensual passions of the flesh, those who can barely escape them. Verse 19, they promise freedom 
while they themselves are slaves of corruption. These false teachers say no to the lordship of Christ, and because they are teachers in the church, they infect others with the same cheap salvation that allows them to be immoral and live any way that they want to live. And very often, they cover it with grace, and it cheapens the whole matter of salvation. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 29, probably clearly warns us of this more than anywhere else. It says, how much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? Yikes. Well, continue on to number six and the stigma of their operation. Their stigma is the stain their operation leaves on the faith, leaves on Christianity. Notice the end of verse two. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. Think for a moment how the fallen world perceives the church. How is Christianity presented to the world at large? Well, it sees these professing Christians who claim to represent Christ, but who have consistently said no to his lordship over their lives. And they have been unmasked countless times as nothing but lying adulterers, abusers, depraved debaucherers, without any restraint, and because of them, the way of truth is blasphemed. It's mocked. It's laughed at. The way of truth is simply an expression of the true teaching, the, the true gospel, the true doctrine of the Christian message. It is maligned. It is defamed. It is blasphemed. And this is really Satan's plan to infiltrate the church with its false teachers and false converts and just defame Christianity for the whole world to see. Inside the church, right? They deceive people into this cheap kind of message propagated by hypocritical false teachers and they'll all be damned by that deception. On the outside, so malign Christianity by the reoccurring unmasking of these false teachers that people discredit the way of truth. Mission accomplished. Beloved, remember the calling for our life in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14. Peter said to the church, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. See, the church is called to live a certain kind of life testifying to the true life transformation of the gospel message. 2 Corinthians 5 says, verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is passed away. Behold, the new has come. Not perfect, forgiven, but the new has come. It's not the same. The new, by the grace of God. Jesus tells us in 
Matthew chapter 5, verse 14. You are the light of the world, speaking of the church. A city that should be set up on a hill that cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give what? Glory to your Father who is in heaven. In Philippians 2.15, Paul has a, a similar command. He says to prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain. So there's our marching orders, beloved. If you're a child of God, prove yourself to be blameless in the midst of this perverse, crooked and perverse generation. Don't live as the rest of the world lives. Crooked and perverse, Paul says, you, the bride of Christ, appear as lights in the world. See, Satan has the church Coming and going both ways is his deception. First, he brings the false teachers in, which confuse and deceive the people inside of the church. And then there's the constant unmasking of all the false teachers to the people outside of the church. And they laugh and mock all of the ridiculousness. Another pastor down for this, another teacher down for that, and money and sexual allegations and drunkenness and orgies and on, on it goes satan is just getting it both ways and so that's the stigma that these false teachers leave behind but god has called for a holy people to bring holiness for his name we are to walk worthy of the one who has redeemed us we're to manifest good works we are to love one another we're to live pure godly virtuous lives so that the way of truth won't be blasphemed. The false Christianity of false teachers that you see all over the TV sets is blasphemy, for it makes a mockery of Jesus Christ by lessening, distorting, denying his person, his work, and his church. That brings us to number seven, and their sustaining motive. What's these false teachers' motive? found at the beginning of verse 3. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. What drives them to be false teachers? It's not being driven by their sexual immorality. They can really do that anywhere. They don't need to be a false teacher to be immoral. And if all they wanted to do was to fulfill their sensual desires, they wouldn't need to be a false teacher to do that. But there's another component at play here. What is it? It's greed. The driving force of their enterprise is not to love the word of truth. It is not to submit to the Lord God. It is not even the sexual immorality. The driving force is money. This word for greed means covetedness and uncontrolled greed. They're in it to accumulate money. 
And we'll see this as we go, but notice the end of verse 14. You see it there. They have hearts trained in what? Greed. They're experts at it. They can con money out of anybody. What do they do? They secretly move into the church, and in their greed, verse 3, they will exploit you with false words. They pervert the scriptures. They, they twist them to get your money. It says with false words, and that false word is that interesting word I told you, the uh, plastoy, where we get the word plastic from. We don't really think about it much anymore, but plastic got that name because the implication was it's fake. <laughs> it's plastic. It's fake. Remember the old uh, Snapple twist bottles that were made out of glass, right? Well, if you go and grab one today at first glance, it looks like the same bottle. And you grab one, it's not. It's fake. It's plastic. Look at most of our cars. They're, they're not real metal. It's plastic. They're fake. <laughs> they're all fake. What's plastoy? It's fake. It's fabricated to deceive. So they come into the church with their fake arguments and their plastic theology. If you were to look up the richest pastors, I'm guessing probably over 95% of them are false teachers, and in their greed, they will exploit, exploit you with false words. They do not preach God's truth. It's not what the Bible says. It's all molded to deceive you. And they all have a book to sell you, too. Did you notice? Or, or some great water from their sink, then they claim it's going to heal you. They fly around the world to packed stadiums and their multi-million dollar jets, and in their greed, they will exploit many, many people with false words. So we've seen the false teachers' fear. They're in the church. Their secrecy, they secretly bring in destructive heresies. Their sin, they deny the sovereign mastery of Christ over their life, and they'll live any way they want. We saw their success. Many will follow them. Their sensuality, their eyes are full of adultery. Their stigma, they cause the church to be blasphemed as the world mocks our claims of holiness. Their sustaining motive is greed. And then we got one final bonus round. Number eight, and their sentence. This is the sentence of their operation. Verse three. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Thus saith the Lord. <laughs> Compared to Jude 4, as the false teachers there, who crept in unnoticed, were long ago designated for condemnation. And the principle in the two verses in Jude 4 and here in verse 3 is that although these false teachers will not face their eternal condemnation, until death, their sentence, nonetheless, has been decreed by God from long ago. Long ago. How long? Well, before the foundations of the world. That's a permanent principle by which God has always dealt with false teachers. From the first pronouncement of judgment on the serpent in the garden, God has condemned all those who distort divine truth. But what does he mean by their condemnation from long ago is not idle? It's the idea that it hasn't run out of gas. It, it, it hasn't become um, weakened over time. It isn't effective. It's still valid. 
it's still operative. And their destruction, he says, their eternal damnation is not asleep. And he um, uh, personifies their destruction. As if destruction were kind of like an executioner. As he says, their executioner hasn't fallen asleep. Oh, he's fully awake. He's well aware. Don't worry about that. It's quite a sketch that Peter has drawn for us. And as we go through this chapter, he's going to add a lot of detail for us, and he's going to fill in the corresponding colors to this sketch. And by the time we're done with this chapter, you will clearly recognize false teachers if you don't already have a pretty good idea of them by now. But let me just close with this. Down in verse 9 there, it says something I wanted to point out. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. That's God's promise. The unrighteous are headed for judgment, while the godly he rescues for salvation. In Scripture, we see only two destinations, if you will, two roads. In Matthew 7, verse 13, I refer to part of what Jesus said. He says, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. In John 14, 16, Jesus narrows that way even further. He says salvation isn't just found on a path, it's found in a person. As Jesus embodies all these in their most purest form, he says, I am. I am the way. I am the truth. And I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And I'm here to tell you this morning, the only way for you to be rescued as one of the godly from trials is through the Lord Jesus Christ. Back in 2 Peter 2, 9, it said the Lord knows how to rescue the godly. How does he know how to rescue them? He knows his own because he died for his own on the cross 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years ago when he died, he did not die hoping that some random, unknown, hopeful number might hopefully trust in him. No, in Matthew 121, it says of Mary that she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. When Jesus died on that cross, he himself bore our sins. Everyone's sins? No, his own. Our sins in his body on that tree that we, everybody, we might die to sin and live to righteousness. If you are one of his, he paid your penalty and he rose victoriously from the dead. He paid for your sins. 
when Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago died on the cross at Calvary, he died for Nick's sins. Each one of my sins he bore in his body on the tree that I might die to sins and live to righteousness. For by his wounds we are healed. I want to just end by closing to remind you that you cannot have him as a savior without him being your Lord. Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Will find it. If you're in need in prayers this morning, uh, you're welcome to come forward or you're welcome to stay after service today with Sister Elizabeth. This time I want to invite you to please stand as we praise our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is mighty to save. Lord bless you.